level. Do some stuff. One and two and three and four. We are setting a level like never before. <laughs> nice improv. Thank you. <laughs> did you did you have that planned or did you come up with that on the spot? No, it just happened out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's see how that's going. <laughs> Hello friends, and welcome to episode 5 of So Poetry. Um, I actually have a guest today. Um, this will be, hopefully I won't have any random um, just me again episodes. Unless you like that. Um, no one has commented or sent me messages saying one way or another, so I'm just going to keep doing what I want until I hear from people. And then I'll probably continue to still do what I want, even if I do hear from people. Anyway, um... I am here with the wonderful and like amazing friend person, Sarah Bear. Um, we how long have we known each other for? A while. <laughs> Some length of time. Yes. Any probably anywhere between two and three years. Really? No. <laughs> I take it back. I feel like two. Two sounds about. Right. Well, how long have you known Anthony and Marie? We we met. We met your mutual them. friends. Yes, Anthony, who was on episode two, um, Anne Marie, who will be the next episode of this month. You're you're a sandwich between them. I love that. <laughs> I hope it's a good sandwich. Um, yeah. How did we How did we meet? Like, I don't. I honestly don't remember when. Like, when and how we first started hanging out. I think we met. Was that at a party? Probably. Or maybe even a reading. Hmm. And then we did something weird, which is funny, and this is why it feels like it's been longer, because Amory and Anthony um, asked us if we wanted to go to a yoga class. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we that's, both went. Yeah, that. I think that was the first time that we... I think that was the first time that we met, was at the UB yoga class that didn't happen, so we just did... I went. We just did yoga. We just did yoga together with a phone in between all of our heads. It was very silly. And after that, I said to you, I think we should do some sort of physical activity together. We should fit, find some kind of hobby thing to do. And Oh, yeah, that's right. Months later, I stumbled across some silks at uh, Artscape. I don't know if you want to explain what Artscape is. Oh, um, Artscape is a... Um, I think it's an annual like arts and crafts um like fair celebration thing that happens in kind of upper downtown baltimore um if you're in baltimore and you're around um ub and micah mount royal the street that kind of runs like bisects like that area is completely closed down and they have um artists can rent stalls and stuff um and kind of sell their wares and just like talk and meet people um there will usually there will be um, acts and stuff that are associated with it. So there is there have been some aerial acts the last couple of years. Um, there's usually there's sometimes some uh, theater stuff too, um, which I think is usually it's usually at night. 
Um, there's some musical performances and stuff that happen kind of throughout the day, but especially at night, there's some stages and stuff kind of around. Um, yeah, so there are... I stumbled across yeah. these aerial silks. They had a rig set up outside just in the middle of the street. And all of our friends were, I don't know, gathering together and talking. And I kept leaving them to watch this performer. And I couldn't stop watching them. And I said to Michael, hey, I think we should do this. And he said, oh, well, I've already been doing that for a year. <laughs> so I said, sign me up. Tell me how to do it. And that's where my aerial experience started, or journey, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, been doing that ever since so I think then seeing each other go through readings and parties and then um, every week pretty much doing aerial stuff is how we we became friends and taking a couple of hikes together down at Billy Goat which is amazing I was definitely gonna bring that up if anybody is in the kind of Baltimore or like northern Virginia-ish DC area if you've not hit Billy Goat um, which is down in Carter Rock um, around like the Potomac River, it's a w awesome trail. Lots of scrambles, um, really really beautiful riverscapes, especially when the water is high. Um, but if the water is high, you probably won't be able to make it out on the trail, which we discovered early <laughs> early this year. Um, we had gotten a lot of snow and um, it was melting, and the Potomac was astoundingly high and the water was swift and there's a section of Billy, Go of Billy Goat A Trail that you have to cross a little um, like outcropping of the Potomac and we couldn't um, but we did knock a tree into water and generally just oh and throw uh, rocks into ice many rocks into yeah. ice which was poetry yeah in motion <laughs> yes um so that's kind of some backstory of how Sarah and I know each other. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what you do, kind of more about you in, in specific. I teach middle school art to kids with dyslexia, um, meaning they have writing and reading um, struggles. And I went to Maryland Institute College of Art for photography. And I do silks, as we talked about. I also do, um, I'm part of Fluid Movement, which is an amazing, amazing thing here in Baltimore. It's a synchronized swimming group, but they take anybody, all shapes and sizes, uh, <coughs> with any experience at all in the water. And we then do a synchronized swimming show every year in the summer. And there's also a synchronized um, roller skating show. Ooh. Yes. I did not know about that. I don't do that one. It's too much because I also do partner acrobatics and trapeze. <laughs> and you nanny. And I nanny to amazing children. Um, They're boy-girl twins. And yes. So I do a lot of things, I suppose. Yeah, there's... I don't think I've met anybody in Baltimore yet that does as much as Sarah does and still seems to have time to like do a hour-ish long podcast. Um, also, nobody out there can see this. You've probably heard paper rustling. Um, 
throughout the beginning of this little introduction. Um, but Sarah has come, I think, with more printed out poems than any <laughs> of my, or either the other two guests, which is fantastic, and I love. Um, and also, like, Sarah is my first um, not actively writing poetry guest. Um, so I said, I think I mentioned this, hopefully I mentioned this in my, the initial podcast, is that I, I would like, I'm trying to get a, like anybody who's willing to talk to me about poetry on this podcast. Because um, I think that there's definitely value in the perspective of people who maybe not necessarily write it. Because um, usually, it's been my experience that um, it's a lot of, like most of the people reading poetry nowadays are either people in like classes or in some manner of academia or poets. It's always really refreshing to encounter people that are um, creative and creatively minded in other ways outside of poetry that are that seek poetry out and have a respect for it and enjoyment of it. Um, because like Sarah is kind of the ideal. Um, audience, I think, for writers. Um, That's you, very kind. <laughs> well, because, like, you, I mean, you're not... I assume that you've probably been exposed to poetry in, you know, like, the various classes that you've taken in high school and maybe a little bit at Micah, too. Um, oh, yeah, I was in a poetry class at Micah. And I think that, um, like, most people probably experience poetry in high school, but a very, very small spectrum of it. So it's always kind of refreshing to... <coughs> well, I apologize for that. You'll probably hear me coughing throughout the, the podcast. I'm recovering from a kind of, kind of stubborn cold, so I apologize. Um, but anyway, I, um, it's refreshing to me to encounter people who have had exposure to poetry, but then kind of take it upon themselves to seek it out. Like, Sarah's been to a lot of the MFA readings, um, which, again, is really kind of an oddball thing because it's um, usually just other writers. Like, other writers in Baltimore are usually the ones that go to open mics or to readings. Um, but both Sarah and Anne-Marie, um, I would like to think... Um, like not just because they have friends that are either reading or also going, but because there's a she's shaking her head. So I feel justified in saying this that there's a like each of them have um, like their own kind of personal engagement and connection and enjoyment with it. Um, I do. Yeah. I do. I want. I want to say I think it's interesting listening to some of your other previous podcasts, and you were talking about how many of the writers that you've had. On have really been exposed to poetry through music and I'm not saying that I have not also had that experience but I my experience with poetry or my introduction to poetry was actually much younger and was with an actual poet oh um, because I was a very strange weird child and instead of trying to make myself seem more normal I was really very much more interested in separating myself from my peers and I read constantly constantly mm. and I had this book I wish I could remember the name of it and they um there was a small poem um in between stories or something and it was an Emily Dickinson poem uh. and I loved it so I immediately checked 
and Emily Dickinson like the book of selected poems out of the library mm-hmm. which was like my second home as a very small child <laughs> and I read absolutely everything I could from her and in fact when we had to do book reports I always chose her and I think I dressed as Emily Dickinson about three or four times in my elementary career um, we and we did kind of a cool project considering my school I went to school in North Carolina public school and um, I I would not call it progressive whatsoever, but one of the things we had to do was memorize a poem. And I memorized Hope is a Thing with Feathers. And I recited it in front of my class wearing all white because the best part to me about (laughs) Emily Dickinson was not only that her poetry to me spoke to something that I couldn't articulate then and still can't now really, but she, her life story was fascinating. I mean, especially towards the end of her life, her reclusiveness mm-hmm. and wearing all white and even her early life when she, I'm going to get it wrong and it's going to be embarrassing, <laughs> but she was friends with either the Web- Webster family. Oh, like maybe? the dictionary people? Yes. One of the dictionary really? people. And I might have the dictionary wrong, so I apologize right now to all can, of the dictionary. We can dictionary fact check it later. Or- people associated with dictionary um but one of the things that she did was she took the dictionary and every day would memorize words until she'd memorized the entire dictionary and i thought that was so cool so i tried to do it but i have a lot less stamina (laughs) but i did learn a lot of words that way and i just thought she was great and i had and I think it gave me a very romanticized idea of what a poet is or could be. Mm-hmm. And, but I was really attracted to that image. Mm-hmm. And it made me seek out more poets because I was fascinated. And I read a lot of poetry all through elementary school and middle school. And, um, and then in high school, fell in love with Bukowski. Mm-hmm. So kind of a funny switch from Emily Dickinson to Bukowski, though I can still put them both in my tops. Um, yeah, I, I, something that struck me and I just listened again to the Tracy interview that you've done before me and she was talking about all of the musicians that she listened to and, and having that realization that they were all men. Mm-hmm. And I have, I mean, my first, the poet that I loved the most, it was a woman and I identify that way as well. Um, but, uh, there was something about. Bukowski and his dirty old man ways mm-hmm. that appealed to me and it didn't make me question my gender whatsoever or really anything but I just found it fascinating mm-hmm. uh, his, how gritty he was and how unapologetic about yeah, it that's, I think I, I feel like I said this in a previous podcast but I actually I was at Barnes and Noble early but I didn't say this in previous podcast this is a tangent um, I was at Barnes <laughs> and Noble earlier today working on a um, a resume actually for a position at Mica. Ooh, mm-hmm. um, and I saw a so of the poets in the poetry section at the Towson Barnes and Noble. Um, there's probably more books by Bukowski in like that single run, and maybe like maybe him and Mary Oliver have a pretty pretty comparable um, like different publications that they have out on the shelf, and. Um, I know the old adage is that you can't judge a book by its cover, but after taking type and design class, I do a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It was actually I picked up a Bukowski book today, and the reason was because the not only the title but also the cover of it. It just struck me as um, I don't know something that seemed like I needed to I needed to get. Um, and reading through, I just I was thumbing through it um, before I got it, and I. This is the thing that I, I think that I've said before, and I keep coming back to it that. Um, like, I read Bukowski like other people take shots of whiskey for courage. Um, that yes. whenever whenever I get too much in my own head or too much, like, too critical about my writing or too, um, I don't know, just down on it that I'm, that the way that I'm writing, nobody else seems to be, like, nobody else seems to be doing what I'm doing or that I, like, most of the voices um, diverge in a different way from where I'm headed um, I read Bukowski because he really doesn't give a fuck with his poetry. It's like he does what he wants, like you said, unapologetically. Um, like his his line breaks um, are kind of all over the place. It seems like they're all very inherent to whatever poem that he's working on. One of the ones that I read in that collection reminded me of kind of of William Carlos Williams with the mm. way that it, like the, mm-hmm. the really, really short lines. Um, and actually one of my own poems in my thesis that I wrote that was influenced by Williams but also apparently was probably pretty influenced by Bukowski too because it's like they read and they kind of flow the same and that was that was a, an interesting realization for me um, yeah most of though it's it's interesting to me and I didn't I didn't know this that like you really grew up reading poetry I did, and you know, my dad also um, read a lot of poetry, and still does. And I, there were always poetry books around the house, but I don't think I really um, maybe processed it so much as I was growing up because my dad, he read to me every night before bed. I grew up in a single parent household, and he read to me every night before bed. I mean, for an obscene amount of time. Hmm. I think I was maybe twelve before we finally were like, well, maybe we should start reading these books separately and then we can talk about them <laughs> um but i but we never read poetry together mm-hmm. uh aside from maybe dr seuss if we can call i i would call that poetry so you know we would read novels together would you oh so you would read novels like separately and then talk about them or read them like that would be the stuff that he read to you before that's the way the stuff he read to me before and then yeah we would we would read novels separately and talk, talk about them but you um, you didn't did you ever do that with poetry? Never. Or? Huh. Um, but, you know, all these papers that used to be around me, I was trying to come up with some sort of strategy on how to organize myself because this interview came up sort of quickly. <coughs> and um, Yes. So. I, well, I, I, wanted, I want to apologize for that, that when, when I interviewed um, Tracy and Anthony, they had a good, like, week or so to look over their questions, and I... Note that, audience. <laughs> I, I touched base with Sarah about a week ago, asking if she would be up for um, recording an episode, and on um, Saturday at Open Hang for Ariel, she's like, oh, by the way, I got your text, and yes, sorry that I didn't respond to you. I was like, oh, cool. When are you free? And we realized that Monday, today, the 7th, um, would really be the only day that we were free, and I sent her the questions late Saturday evening. Um, so she's only had like a day, eh, maybe like two days, a day and like three fourths, 
Let's call it two hours because oh, yeah, I didn't all the really other stuff that you <laughs> read stuff, it yeah. um, until probably late last night. And um, so my strategy for preparing to make sure I'd know what I was talking about and not sound like an idiot was, oh, I bet, I wonder, I'm just going to type poem into Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. And surprisingly, only 57 emails came up. Um, which out was of, a surprise to me. Many? I don't know how many emails. I've had that email for a while, probably since senior year of high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is that is a, like much longer than my definition of what a while would be. Yeah. I've, I've had the same email for a long time. But um, so then I went through all of them, and a lot of them were poems that I had sent to other people, and some of them were poems that I'd written, and some of them were poems that – most of them are poems, though, that I just loved and just knew someone needed to read, mm-hmm. uh, or I needed them to read to understand some sort of feeling or something that I was going through. So I printed out a wide dearth of those, mm-hmm. um, but Is I didn't actually even get a chance. No, I don't know where that word came from just now. Um, <laughs> so, and honestly, I didn't even get a chance to read a lot of them over again. Um, but I just wanted to be prepared in case there was something. And I thought maybe this would give me some sort of lexicon I could lean on, I suppose. Uh, but there, there's a lot here. And, and, and it, it's a testament to, yes, I've been reading poetry a lot. And, and I think to sending poetry to someone yeah, so I was, is an interesting idea. Um, you, you said, and this is something that I was, I think that I've been thinking about, but I didn't have like the vocabulary to ask that um do you use poetry um as a way to emote or to understand your emotions like if you're if you're feeling something do you seek out poetry um for that kind of external space that your emotions can go into that allows you to process them sometimes um i don't know how to explain this exactly but sometimes i feel like i I get in this mode where poetry is what I need. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think that I turn to poetry like some people would turn to a Bible. Mm. Uh, Not necessarily a seeking of salvation but or atonement, but I will go to a book, like this book I have in my hand right now, Stephen Dunn's New and Selected Poems, which I actually gave to Emory at one point. One of my favorite, favorite uh, collections of poems and I will just flip to a page (laughs) and if it is and I'll read it and if it doesn't work flip to another page (laughs) and and really usually within three flips I have something that grabs me the way that I I wanted to be grabbed yeah so and it's not necessarily because whatever they were feeling when they were writing or what they're trying to convey is what I am going through presently, but there's just something about it that I can find there. Yeah. It's like, so I, I do, I do something similar to music, which I, again, I think I may have mentioned, um, in one of my earlier podcasts that I, um, I emote through music, um, so I'm I'm typically the person in a great number of my friendships and relationships that my friends will come to when they need to like vent or they need to get stuff off of their chest, um, and I 
I personally don't have somebody that I go to for that. Um, I've, and it's always been kind of the case for me that I like I really keep that stuff kind of internal. Um, but when I need to, um, like when I need to get that stuff out, I seek out music because that to me creates that sort of whatever. It's either um, music that is um, in the same family or along the same lines of whatever it is that I'm feeling, or it's that even if it's not, it creates that like that echo or that like there's a little like hook or something that catches on where like it, these things meet up and like that's what I need to just feel better. And it seems that um, if I understand what you've been saying correctly, it seems that you seek out poetry along kind of along the same lines. Yes, and then there will be moments where I seek out music as mm-hmm. well, and it's a different space for me most of the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's how I see it out. But, I mean, I will also just pick up a book and read it, a poetry book and read it, or I'll look up a poet that I just, for some reason, struck me to think about. Mm-hmm. And I, I always find something there, and... You know, those lines, I'll mull over them, you know, over and over again. And a lot of it, too, is how it's set up on the page, like you were talking about. But, and, I don't know, I was really struggling with one of the questions that Michael has given us, which is, what is a poem you really hate? <laughs> which, as he knows, and all my friends know, I have no trouble um, telling people what books I really don't like, don't care for. Which is interesting, I think, and maybe revealing, but <coughs> I I couldn't tell you that now. I mean, I'm sure if you handed me one of your mini poetry books that I could <laughs> flip through and be like, well, this one sucks. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> but that's for me, you know? Yeah, and I, that's something, that's a question. So for for Anthony, I mean, for Anne-Marie and uh, Sarah, I added, I have a like a Google Doc of, um, questions that I've been kind of relying on of just like if I ever get stuck or interview ever gets stuck or there's certain things that I want to know I'll go back to the questions but for Sarah and Anne-Marie I added a, an extra page for um, like non-poets and it's questions that I didn't think to ask Anthony or Tracy um, but one of the questions was a, like a double is like what is your favorite poem or what is one of your favorite poems or and what is one like that you hate and I, I feel like, I think with most people, it's probably, like, poets. Not necessarily a particular poem, but there's certain poets that you're just like, no, I can't, can't get behind that. But it's not, it's not so much, I don't know, it, it seems that with, with people dealing with poems, it's either, like, or poets, it's like, you either really, really love somebody, or you're like... Yeah, they're all right. You're indifferent about it. And I think yeah. I think one of the reasons why it's easier to name a novel is because you've probably tried to slog through it. Oh, yeah. Or you were forced to slog through it through school, <coughs> or maybe someone gave it to you and you felt this responsibility to them to try to read through right, it. Right, yeah. Uh, whereas a poem, if you don't like it, it wasn't that long. Right, yeah. And you forget about it yeah. more than like, oh, God, that experience was grueling. Yeah. Uh, I think that changes it a little bit. And, I've only, like, the only... Yeah poetry that I've had to slog through was um, probably the Aeneid um, or maybe Beowulf so like the like the super long epic poems um, I think it was just a bad translation um, perhaps I had a very good teacher <coughs> when 
when I did it. I don't know. I think I think it's interesting. So I have an experience where I teach a creative writing and um, art mix-up class uh, with another teacher of my school in the summers for five weeks, and it's still working with kids with dyslexia, and it's not necessarily working with the same students I would work with in the school year, and it's a completely different experience than what I do with them in art class because I'm thrown right into my teacher and I, other creative writing teacher, and I have a really great relationship, and he just throws me right into it with them. Mm -hmm. And I think what's amazing is how easily we both can hit on when a kid writes something that's just beautiful or just so well composed we can pick that line out mm -hmm. and and I think it's it's definitely something that happens in art as well and I think it comes from just having read a lot mm -hmm. and understanding of voices mm -hmm. um, but for the children it's so hard for them to pick out those lines themselves oh yeah I actually brought because why wouldn't I my props a uh, book it's like a mixed vein of Writing that my students did and probably can't hang around the <laughs> And so Sarah got, just got up to um, take something out of her bag. Yeah. No, but I think that um, I think that she brings up a good point that um, young writers, be it um, either in age or in practice, like people who have not been writing poetry for very long, um, I think that it's it's a lot more difficult for them to to see the lines that are on fire and that are shining bright um, as it is for <coughs> someone who, who's been doing it for a really, really long time. Because you, you begin to, like someone who's been writing for a long time kind of knows the, their voice and knows what they're, what they're going for and what, like how their individual poems feel to them. And the, like some of the stuff that I've written um, when I was in Nebraska on the residency and then the last kind of grouping of stuff that I wrote in the spring um, I have moments where when I'm composing it and I'm writing it down a line will just hit and I know it in the moment like this is a fucking fantastic line and this is probably not going to change throughout the revision process like this is one of those like the fulcrum point that the rest of the poem can kind of hinge and um, can hinge on and be uh, it can be used to, to as a model for the rest of the poem to be like shifted around um and some kids just seem to have it. So I'll read you a poem. This is written by a student who was, I would say, eight or nine years old. I can't tell you his name because that's teacher stuff. But I can't remember what our prompt was for this, honestly. I wish I did because that might help. But I guarantee you, especially knowing the student, that no matter what the prompt was, it, this has nothing to do with it. Um, but it's called Magic, so I'll just read it. Magic. The curse of humanity was caused by black magic. Even the night is a symptom of magic. Haunting the sky and the woods, making themes, things seem unknown, magic. In the city, people do not see what they see in the real world. In the air and the clouds and the sea, there will be magic. All the elements of the world have it, all around the earth and space of eons, circles magic and the deepest cave is the only place you will not find it and the stars behind the curtains of fate lurks magic now i'm gonna tell you right now i have no idea what the fuck he's talking about <laughs> but i know it's awesome and it's 
like, okay, so the poem next to it by another student starts with the leaves fall and fall, which completely, you know, that could work in a poem if you worked with it, but it's much more typical of a student of that age. Mm -hmm. And this kid has something in his soul. Yeah, like that last line that... Um, in the stars behind the curtains of fate lurks magic. Like that's, that's what? amazing. What? What? I, what? I, uh, there's no way in hell I could have written that. When I was no, I would never have written that. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't write it now. <laughs> and the curse of humanity is just an interesting. I don't know if he knows <coughs> what he's talking about, but yeah, it's it's an interesting way to imagine someone thinking of the world and being a human. And I think. I think it's interesting because kids are just like adults, young adults starting to write poetry. A lot of it is about love that they could know a lot about but probably don't know in the marital sense. And then uh, death, things decaying. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and they're very romantic and they... And a lot of them are about landscapes because in their mind, that's what people write poetry about. Like, that's who poets are. Yeah, whereas it would be really interesting to me to give um, a class of like middle schoolers a Bukowski poem or like a Billy mm -hmm. Collins poem. <clears throat> I mean, some of the, the tamer Bukowski poems. Right. Um, and, and we have done that. And it's amazing. I mean, not Bukowski, but um, I'm trying to remember... I don't know if we read this particular one, but um, one of the poet, poets that we introduced some of the kids to is this uh, guy, Russell Edson, and I, I love his work. It's very strange, and there are a lot of puns, and I, I feel very much like I don't understand the depth of what he's talking about, <laughs> or I don't understand whether I'm supposed to have depth coming from it, but... I'll read you one. <clears throat> I definitely didn't read this to a class, but I could. And uh, yes, okay, so angels. They have little use. They are best as objects of torment. No government cares what you do with them, like birds and yet so human. They mate by briefly looking at the other. Their eggs are like white jelly beans. Sometimes they have been said to inspire a man to do more with his life than he might have. But what is there for a man to do with his life? They burn beautifully with a blue flame. When they cry out, it is like the screech of a tiny hinge, the cry of a bat. No one hears it. And that's another poem. Like I feel like I could probably talk to you about what I think it's about, mm -hmm. but I also feel very strongly that I would probably miss some big piece of it. And that doesn't bother me at all. At all. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, I don't know, I try to model my life around is that I'm going to learn more, mm -hmm. I hope, and my feelings and my thoughts and my opinions could and hopefully will change based on new information. Right. Well, there's also, I think with, especially with poetry, um, because it's so subjective and it deals with like a transfer of an experience or an emotion... Um, I think much more than, at least some of them deal with that much more than a narrative or that telling a story or something that is supposed to mean something. I think that with, with poetry, it's a lot easier um, and a lot more accepted 
for readers to kind of just fill in and like interpret and experience it the way that they experienced it. <coughs> Absolutely. Because <coughs> it's not like that may mean something to Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may have, there may have been some very specific feeling or whatever that, that, um, was the genesis of that. But, you know, like with, with poetry and allowing readers to do the work, I think once, like once it kind of gets beyond, once it's written, there is like what it means to the poet, which is an, like a useful and a, um, I think a valuable interpretation of it, but it's. On the other hand, with that, you have all the other interpretations of what it means for readers. Some of them might be very close to what the poet originally intended, and some of them may be way the fuck, like, totally not in the same, like, continent of what the poet intended. But I think that they're all still valid because it made you feel like I. And this is, I think this is something that I mentioned earlier. Um, that I, I feel like if poetry makes you feel something um then at least in that respect it did its job there might be more that the poet intended for it to do um (coughs) or more that it it could do or could inspire but if it makes you feel something then at least like you could check that off of it 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 was (laughs) effective poem like for you right exactly so one of the poets that we do introduce the kids to, I'm, I finally remembered something. We, uh, the other teacher has read them uh, a couple of Gloria Steinem's. And mm. he doesn't, um, he doesn't give them a recording. He reads it. And I think that's part of it. And we would never, or I don't think it would benefit us in any great way to explain exactly her intent, um, that we know about because she has talked about it and written extensively about it. But uh, the kids, they laugh, they laugh. And I think for us, it's so important to kind of remind them you have so much and you can be a poet. You can write in this way that's very effective and can be very silly, but it's fun. And not that some Poems can't be torturous to write. I think that's (laughs) certainly true. But uh, what a nice way to introduce kids to this idea that you can write what you want and have fun with it. And if you want to call it poetry, then it is poetry. Yeah. And I I think that with... I don't know. Um, So in um, when I went to the Haiku Conference, I was kind of butting up a little bit with this, that there are... A lot of different definitions of what a haiku is, um, and I feel like, <coughs> <coughs> sorry guys, um, I feel like with haiku it's a little bit more difficult to have the interpretation be wide open because it is a form, like a sonnet. You know, it's like if you're dealing with a sonnet, there's only kind of so many things it can be, and there's only so far that you can push it and flex. Um, flex the form until it stops being a sonnet. I, th- I feel like the same thing with haiku, that there's really only there's a finite amount of pressure that you can put on it before it stops becoming a haiku, but if you're talking about poetry in general, like just 
the art of poetry. Um, it's so wide and it's so vast and it really encompasses, or I think could encompass, like, anything. Yeah, and I think that's why some poems are not going to reach me, just like some right. genres of novels are not going to reach me because it's, not that it's not meant for me, and not that I wouldn't try it out, but, uh, you know, it's it's va- as vast as the people who are writing it. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, like, strict language poetry that I'm not super engaged with. Um, like, people who are just putting words together to see what they sound like or what happens when you have a bunch of S words that are hanging out next to each other. Like, what what things did that evoke? Um, Spitting. Yeah. Or, <laughs> um, I don't know, snakes. You might, I don't know. But you can't help but have fun when someone is reading something like that. No, yeah, that's the thing that, like, it's it's similar to me um, to musicians that make really, like, fun, goofy music. Um, It's, I, in certain circumstances, I really, I mean, usually I enjoy it just because it's, um, if seeing seeing a musician or seeing somebody having fun is, is kind of infectious, like you you want to have fun when you see somebody have fun. Um, it's not only a little infectious; it is infectious. Yeah. So there have been all those studies about happiness and how it can <coughs> spread. If you are happy and you spread it to the people around you who are happy, and they become happy, and then people that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's for me it's. Um, I very rarely use poetry and music in that way. So for a lot of the musicians that I listen to or the music that I listen to and a lot of the poets that really kind of capture my attention or poets that move in similar ways that I move or that poets that I can kind of extract things that seem to have um, echoes or shadows or family members in the way that I, I do stuff, which probably limits my writing to a certain extent, um, but I don't know. I feel it's like there are some summer days that are awesome. It's like it, you know, you go swimming, you have fun. But I'm much more like give me an autumn or a winter day. And it's like that's that's where I'm situated. And it's not that I can't have fun. It's just usually like not you know, it's not my top choice of you know, something to, to go. I don't know. I guess it's probably more of like a mood thing for me than. Yes, Michael hates fun. Yeah, I, it's you're having fun. <laughs> I'm gonna get up and leave the room because I can't. I can't stand it. No, I, I understand what you mean. I mean, there's a deeper feeling in this winter day melancholy moment that you're talking about. Yeah, I, well, I, I think for me, it's, um, well, I'm personally really, really suspicious of happiness. Um, because it's been my experience that happiness of the emotions is one of the easiest ones that you can fake and you can kind of just produce the um, the trappings of or the um, have it just be ostensibly happy and that underneath it there's a lot of other stuff that's going on that's like that would not actually lead you to happiness but you're just going to kind of mask it um, so there's a lot of I think that I, I, I'm getting better at picking it out. Um, 
but seeing like genuine happiness versus a kind of just like put on happiness. <coughs> Whereas when you get into the kind of heavier or like darker hued or less vibrant um, or like more melancholic of the emotions or the feelings, it's a lot more difficult to um, like pass them off as fake if you're not actually feeling that. For me, it's it's much easier to find like an authentic or sincere version of that than happiness. So I think that that's part of the reason why I'm kind of drawn to that stuff too is that I'm attracted to authentically experiencing or authentically dealing with stuff or sincerely dealing dealing with stuff. And it's at least in my experience less common to see people that are like putting on an act of being um, like depressed or just like wistful. Yes. Okay. I don't know. I hear you. I don't know. I, I am... Uh, <coughs> I'm worried about you because you're sick. But also, um, I don't know. I, I've i been reading all these studies about happiness because uh, when you read anything about mindfulness, which our school has just started a mindfulness program, so we have uh, 10 minutes of every day right after... Oh, you were telling me about this. Recess okay. period. You, you tell the story. I'm going to go get some more water. You should. <laughs> um, oh it's devoted to us actually having to do some sort of mindfulness practice with the kids. And they haven't given us explicit instructions, and they're not necessarily watching us very closely, which is a gift. Uh, because I've gotten a chance to really do some wild stuff with the kids that I definitely deem as valid forms of mindfulness. I do some pretty typical stuff too, like body scans and teaching them, you know, some breathing techniques that you can use when you're stressed out, etc. Um, but I've also done rock stacking with the kids because we have this great woods behind our school, uh, and just showing them that there's so many different ways to be mindful, and you're not necessarily one's going to maybe come easier to than than the other. And I've lost my train of what I was talking about now um oh but being happy one of the things that we talked about the other day and my mindfulness practice i'm in a stage presence class right now preparing for an aerial performance that will hopefully happen in march and <laughs> one of the things that they've been making us do is focus on facial expressions so i've been bringing it into the classroom and using them as a test audience of sorts but one of the exercises i had them doing was trying to over emote so I had them cross this large lunchroom from one side to the other, and they had to convey some sort of emotion um, to its highest extent and pretend that the floor was covered in lasers. And they had to cross the room and get to the other side, the other side being something that was the most important to them, something that they cared the most about. So the kids did such... A fantastic job with that I mean some of them were exhausted some of them were stressed out some of them were exuberant and then there was one child who just walked across the room you know maybe picking his foot up a little bit to go past these big lasers but not really doing anything and um, and I, I pushed them a little harder and asked him to lead the next one well okay so how will we go now and he said well let's be tired and I said well let's push it a little farther and be exhausted 
you know, and so they're <laughs> moving across the room and pretending to fall asleep in between the lasers, all cramped up. And it was it was very fun, but it reminded me of all these happiness studies, in which they say even if you fake a smile, yeah, even if you make yourself smile, yeah, it's which like is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It can actually genuinely change your brain chemistry and make no, you yes. more happy. Yes. And as a person who myself, I feel like I am, I'm trying to seek happiness. That is something that I'm doing actively now. Mm -hmm. It's something that I did not realize I needed to put in as much work to do. But yeah. now that I have, I've decided, hell, I'm going to try to be as happy as I possibly can be and trying to seek out what does that mean and how can I do that? Sometimes mm -hmm. in those days where... I am not genuinely feeling super happy. I am genuinely seeking out ways to be genuinely happy. And if it means I'm faking a smile, yeah. um, I will I will do that and I won't feel bad about it. Though I do understand the dangers of, and I definitely was like this as a child, um, especially my teenage years, right? As mm -hmm. everyone goes through their mopey stage. <laughs> uh, I haven't gotten out of mine. Seemingly, right. Well, I mean, and, and that's, it's different. Everyone has a different body makeup, right? And the chemicals in their brain are different. But I remember when I was going through some really dark times and when I would go out with people and it wasn't because, oh, you're so extroverted or something. But right. I would I would put on not just a little bit of happiness, but, oh, I am the happiest person in the world right, yeah, right well, now. I, I think that it's, and it was a cover. Yeah, I think that it, like... The fact that you're setting the intention and you like you're acknowledging that you might not be happy in any given circumstances, but you're setting the intention to seek that happiness. Um, that to me is a much much different than somebody who, like, shit's going wrong and they like deny or don't allow access. They don't allow themselves access to whatever negative feelings that they need to work through and just kind of put down that sh like that mayonnaise of just happiness that little sheen that's right across it um mayonnaise of happiness. yes <coughs> I, well undoubtedly so because part of my trying to seek happiness is acknowledging and working through the things that are not happy right. things yeah and I, I think that it's like everybody has their own like their own equilibrium state which is what i think you were like where you were getting at when you said that everybody has their own like their makeup and their own chemicals that um, I've long since figured or I've I've long since thought that mine is a little uh, like my equilibrium state is around neutral or maybe a little below neutral so I'm I'm comfortable a lot with um, kind of the like not super into the, the heavier stuff but like hanging out around those like that's that feels really familiar for me and it's not super difficult for me to deal with a lot of that stuff because you know like um and i like i don't i don't know how this happened but i don't think that i've ever um was like when i was growing up i don't think i was i ever was like thought or was taught or needed to unlearn um like not feeling emotions like i always felt stuff and I grew up kind of feeling stuff so it's always been easy for me to like if I'm sad just be sad like if I need to cry there were times if, like within the last well maybe like three or four months ago that's like I needed like stuff was in me and I just needed to get it out so I watched um there's an ending 
scene of an episode of Rick and Morty that after watching it just like destroys me or um, Anne Hathaway's uh, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis but like, I'll just like watch that on repeat two or three times and just like just bawl my eyes out because I need to get whatever in me is out and then I do and I'm like okay I've released that I feel good I can go back to doing whatever it was that I need that I need to do um and I certainly do that as well. Yeah, and I, I but I think that, that like that the fact that you like the mindfulness that you have that you, um, it's like you're setting that intention for yourself that I'm going to seek happiness like through and despite of some of the like if I'm having a crappy day I'm going to seek like the happiness through that. Um, I think that I tend to do the same thing, but I think that like I call it a different thing and like whatever level of happiness that I reach is usually a lower than other people's levels of happiness because like happiness for me is a very um it's like a high energy emotion and I can only get out high energy in spurts like sprints I, I can't sustain that so like excitement is another one of those things it's like it's I'm excited for stuff but it's a maybe just one, like a one, a tick or two up from wherever my baseline is because I just can't I can't sustain that it's way it's way too much. I effort. think most people cannot sustain sustain that really. <coughs> um, <coughs> I have to say I think I think especially when I was in college I can remember and funny because when I was looking up all these poems, um, my dad wrote me a really funny poem about <laughs> this fish that I had left behind. <laughs> And um, in it, in the email, later on in the email, he's asking me about this project and that project, and it was obvious that I had called him in this fit of manic energy of, oh, I'm so excited, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, and I did that throughout college, mm-hmm. really, until about my senior year, and then I lost it. Yeah. I, and it wasn't that I had lost the excitement or the enthusiasm, but I lost the energy right. to sustain that yeah. level of excitement. And I think because... I don't burn steady when yeah. I burn its like firecracker going off. Yeah, that that will that will die out, yeah. and I have to recharge. And and I think that there's there's I a that. like people, and I'm seeing this kind of more and more um, that there are like even if if people allow you to feel kind of a full gamut of this of emotions and they don't demonize or. Um, like deny anything there's still it still seems like there's certain um like accepted ways that you're supposed to feel stuff and if you don't then you're again you're somehow like have deviated from because like my um my roommate has does this a couple times and I've, I've had some other friends that are like this too that like they'll get super super excited about stuff which is fantastic and then they'll show it to me and i'm like it at least ostensibly like mildly interested at best and it's like you know it's like it's cool but i mean i probably don't have the same level of excitement that they have and it somehow like mitigates and diffuses their own excitement that it's like they needed they needed somebody else to kind of like vindicate how excited they feel about that and most of the time i'm just i don't have the like i don't exhibit that sort of response and i feel really shitty about that because like, in in interacting with me, their excitement is cut, and like, oh well, okay. It's like, but no, it's like it's great that you you're happy and excited about this. It's just, eh, 
Here's a little trick for you next time this happens. <laughs> you say, let's celebrate that. Ooh. And you go out and you get a milkshake or whatever it is you're going to do. And their excitement is okay. is hmm. met. And you've done something that shows that you care. But yeah. maybe the verbal expression of that isn't just not in your lexicon. It's just not, yeah. it's not how you express it for them. Yeah. And it shows care. Too. And that's what she's seeking, really, is yeah. you know an acknowledgement and a care. And I don't know. That's something that I've learned just from being in relationships with people. Because man, it stinks when you have had an awesome day and you want to come home and be like, "Guess what I did all day? It was amazing. I did this, and these kids were great, and blah, blah blah blah." And someone's like, "Oh, I had a shitty day." Yeah. Immediately, I don't even want to share about my great day. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And but that's I don't know. That's that's something that's that's kind of dicey to like. The acknowledgement of, like, to be able to like put your shittiness aside for a second, be like, "This is awesome. I'm so glad that you had a bat, that you had a wonderful day." And then for somebody to be able to put their own like, "This is all fucking awesome" aside and be like, "I'm so sorry that you had like a shitty." Like, you can both meet each other and kind of maybe not at the same place, but at least on some like equal footing. Despite it's work. like, oh yeah, it's work oh, because that, I mean, this. and I think part of that seeking happiness thing that I was talking about is when you've had a really bad day. Say you got up late and you got to work and your boss was sitting there and you knew. Ooh, and my laundry is done. See, just like that. And you knew, oh man, they they know and this is awful. And you get in your rumple and I'm, you're trying to teach a class and you realize I haven't really prepared for this and the materials that I ordered have not come in yet for this and I'm going to have to come up with something on the spot. And this kid just picked his nose and put the booger underneath my table and oh, I can't find my keys. Or the acknowledgement of as you were going down the hall after seeing that boss, one of the kids just said, you know, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. And instead of snarling back at no, them, yeah. finding that, being like, this kid genuinely cares yeah. about this, and that's wonderful, and I'm at, in such a lucky position, and, and you know what? I'm creative enough to come up with something for these children on the spot, and right, yeah. we're going to have more fun and a more engaging conversation because of it. It's like, it's just a change of how am I going to approach this? Because, yes, all these things have happened, and they all happen to happy people, too. Right, you know, yeah, that to me is, is like, I would consider that non-attachment to, like, all the, the shitty stuff, where it's like, you can, like, you acknowledge that it happened, but you just, like, you let it just pass so that it doesn't weigh you down and bog you down. And um, So I used to work in a cafe, um, and I was, um, of the cafe's, at like around UB, we were the one that opened up. Um, well, I think Starbucks opened up before we did, but we were a lot closer for some people than Starbucks was. Um, so I was usually when I opened, I was usually the first person that these people have encountered out in the world before they've had their coffee, um, and some of them have already had just really shitty fucking days and. Um, like, I did my absolute best to not add any negativity into that, like, add any more negativity into the system and at least try to, like, leach some of it out. So it's like, if they if they throw their shit at me or they throw their, like, their grumpiness or their, you know, whatever, whatever it is that they're carrying around at me, um, to, like, acknowledge it and be like, you know, at least internally be like, this is not really about me. I just happen to be the one, like, the presence here that they're taking this out on. Mm-hmm. So I can just, like, I can acknowledge that. It's like, this is a really crappy way to treat somebody. But 
I'm just, I'm going to let it go and just let it pass. And then just like that little modicum of like grossness, it's been taken out. Hopefully it's been taken out of their day. Um, and your day, because you right, could yeah. have latched onto that. Oh, and then yeah. every other customer that you mm-hmm. saw and every other experience that you had that day that wasn't quite the way you had hoped could, it could just come crashing down oh, yeah. on you. Which is really like, I don't, so, I don't think, and especially for like people who work retail, um, you have a tremendous amount of power because like working at a cafe was really the first time that I realized how much kind of small insignificant things can fundamentally and radically change the trajectory of somebody's day yeah um like one tiny thing can either make a good day a really shitty day or a really shitty day a good day um and the fact that i would interact with with maybe a hundred or something people in a get any given day or any given shift and um the like those hundred people would then interact with their own groups of people and that would interact with their own so it's like it's that you know that that rippling out effect that you can be kind of the epicenter you can be the the drop of maybe not as much shit in a day and um that can be kind of a i think can be a powerful thing i think it's an extremely powerful thing and i think for some of this poetry that i read it's the same way nice segue because i figured we maybe are supposed to be talking about poetry yeah. I was gonna try to move this back, but um, nicely and, done. And even in those moments where you're crying out, to read another poem that is also crying out mm-hmm. acknowledges it's, that feeling and it that, helps. It can yeah. help or or make it you know ten times as strong, which is I don't think a bad thing. No, I think that that's what you just said is a really good, especially the way that you use poetry and I use music. That's like you're something in you is calling out and you're seeking a response you're seeking an answer or even if it's just like an echo of your own voice it's like you're you're throwing something out into the darkness into the void and hoping that you get something back in return and those poems like the, the ones that the whatever ones that you attach to or that you are attracted to or that imprint on you in those moments are doing the same thing mm-hmm. um Sometimes in response to your voice. I mean, probably not in response to your voice. It probably it's like own, like independent other voices that are yelling out the same thing that you're yelling out, and it's like, oh, oh, I can. It's like seeing that like a um, like a lighthouse way off in the distance. Like, oh shit, there's something. Like I see it. There's something out there. It's like I'm headed in a direction. I don't know if it's the right. It's like I'm at least I have a bearing like somewhere out there. Um, huh, I never thought about that before. I like the way that you articulated that. Thank you. Thank you. It's the resp- it's it's voices like people and voices crying out, trying in hopes that they could hear somebody saying something in response. Because I I guess that's the thing. It's like some of the poems are yelling out the same thing that you're yelling out, um, which can be comforting to know that you're not alone in the, the feelings of these of the, whatever it is that you're feeling. And I think that there are other times that there are, are voices that are calling out in response which is again really comforting to know it's like oh shit there's somebody that I actually out there that has an answer for whatever question that I had so I'm curious if you've had this experience I've had poems that really meant something to me mm-hmm. and I went and did some research and thought to myself I bet this this poet has read this out loud at some point mm-hmm. I'm gonna find it 
and finding a poem that means so much to you and then hearing the poet read it. And for me, in this particular instance that I'm thinking of, in a very, their delivery was very monotone mm-hmm. and expressionless. And it was soul crushing. It was almost as if I felt like I wanted to shake the poet and say, but no, you have this in you. It's like, I just wish I could push you to to show Mm -hmm. it because if someone was just listening to this poem that you're reading right now, they might not feel it because you forgot to deliver it. Which actually brings me to a question. Okay. Um, It might be on the list. It might be kind of a, a mutation of one of the ones on the list. What is your ideal way to experience poetry? Like, would you rather read it to yourself, like have a book or have like online or something and have have the words that you read to yourself? Or would you rather have somebody else, possibly the poet or possibly not the poet who wrote it, read it out loud? Like, would you rather hear it or would you rather sight read it? When I read a poem that I really like and I'm trying to understand, I usually read it just in my head first Mm -hmm. and then I read it again out loud and sometimes just a piece of it Mm -hmm. and I feel like when other people read poems I get more out of it especially Mm -hmm. if it's a poet and I'm always genuinely surprised sometimes by the delivery of a, a poem that I've read over and over again with my own intonation and then hearing the poet read it and realizing you wrote a poem that meant this giant thing to me and yet it means this other giant thing Mm -hmm. to you and that's so strange and it means so much i would love to have one thing that's frustrating to me about a reading sometimes is someone will read something and you didn't quite catch a part mm-hmm. or that one part was just so well done and you know you would never be able to recount it to someone else and you just want to say, hey, um, could you get up there and do that again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that feeling, I, I, I want it again and again. It's part of the reason that I go to readings. And there are many times that, you know, I hear someone read something and it's brilliant. The delivery is just exactly there. But I know if I had read it on paper it would have been one of those poems like I said that not necessarily I slog through but just a poem that I be like eh, okay yeah. I see what you're doing there um but I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't and I think that's another reason that I love the particular scene that we have in Baltimore right now or recently I definitely think this has been the case there's been such a wide variety mm-hmm. of poets and storytellers and authors and writers that Inevitably, there will be something that I would not normally have sought out mm-hmm. being read to me, and it is so valuable. And it helps you understand what you like a lot, even more, mm-hmm. and what you don't necessarily like. But it also reminds you of that empathy that it's just as valid. Right. And I mean, that's what all of this <laughs> is about for me, because there's so many poems, like Bukowski poems, that part of me might identify with some of it and some of it I really I don't I have no idea what this feels like or really is Mm -hmm. but it's just so masterfully twisted around that it appeals to me and I think that's interesting when we're talking about haiku and how you approach it Mm -hmm. 
because um, I can sometimes, because it's about a, maybe finding that emotion or feeling yourself through a similar kind of instance. Whereas with Bukowski, I'm not finding my similar kind of instance. I'm just dazzled, mm-hmm. I think. Hmm. And um, that's not always the case, but certainly somewhat the case. And I think I need to make a case for that as well. Like Russell Edson, I feel the same way about sometimes he makes me laugh and sometimes it makes me like really kind of frustrated. And that is so much fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's the different, like, if you can think of all the different forms that fire can take, like you have wildfire, you have a hearth fire, you have a bonfire, you have like fireworks, you have like the explosions, you have like a lantern light, you have a candle, you have all these different these different incarnations of it. And I think that poetry, like on a large scale, kind of is in the same or operates a lot of the ways in the same space. That you have poems that are. Um, like a fireplace fire that's like that kind of deep warmth that makes you feel or like a bonfire that's that something that makes you feel um and then you have like firework displays like those dazzling things that are just that it's like you're watching it just for the pure enjoyment of like holy shit did you see that like the the pattern that that thing made when it blew up that was awesome it doesn't really like stir any deeper feelings or anything in you but it's still it's like you're still connecting and you're still engaging with it in a different you know a different way um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I also, I think that with, like with poetry, I don't know how accurate this feeling is, but I get the sense that there is that there is, again, despite the fact that it's so vast and it really could be anything that you have these, you have people out there that are like, no, this, this is poetry. And they'll point to like a poem or a group of writers or a movement or something. It's like, this, this is what poetry is about. Um, which like should be asterisked afterwards and be like for them it's like this is what poetry is in parentheses like for that one particular person and not like it's not a pronouncement on um, even though they're delivering it as if it's a pronouncement on like poetry like capital p poetry underneath the capital like the capital a art umbrella it's really just their own personal idea of oh this is like this is what poetry is well okay for you maybe but like who's to say that it can't also be this other thing or you know this other thing i've been i've really been thinking about and trying to figure out a way um like landscapes landscape like portraitures and paintings and stuff really it's like it's land it's the way that the light's playing on it it's like the colors and stuff but there's really there's no greater representational meaning or referencing other than the fact that it's just expanse of some land some earth and sky or you know wilderness or whatever um i've been trying to figure out a way to do that with poetry to have it not necessary because one of the one of the most infuriating questions that i get when i share a poem with somebody is um what does this mean i'm like i don't know it's a poem <laughs> that's not it's like that's not the right question you should be asking about poetry there's a so many other things that are moving and so many other things that take priority consideration over like the meaning of it but because I've, I've heard music so a lot of instrumental music um, that I've come across conjures the images of like landscapes it's, it's that's kind of just what it does there's not really any anything deeper than just that 
And I've been trying to figure out a way to do that with poetry. And I've come across, like, Tom Hannon um, and some haiku kind of paint that. But just, like, cause I, but I do feel like there is that, that sense in poetry that poets want, want to write things that are that means something more, that there's, it somehow greater, it somehow reaches to stuff. And it's like, that's great. If that's, you know, if the poem can contain that and that's, that's what you're trying to, to work through. But like, why can't a poem just be akin to a landscape painting? That, like, if that's it, it's just, just description about something. I guess it would have to be really artfully and like masterfully wrought description. But like, what, what would a, like one of Cezanne's landscapes, what would what would the poetry equivalent to that look like? Yeah. I've been thinking about that. <laughs> I, I am have, I sure I'm sure there is a poet that has tried, and I think you should look that up. I okay, here's an example. So I'm I my main form of art that I produce is photography. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you something. So I was thinking today, like maybe I should write a poem in preparation for this. And uh, and I was thinking haiku, this will work. But the first line was eleven pumpkins, and it's too many syllables. So don't worry about syllables. I stopped, and I know you tell me not to worry about syllables, but I kind of like the restriction. Mm, okay, it's one of the things that appeals to me about haiku, though I don't teach it that way when I teach it to children. But um, I two and a half weeks ago had talked to my advisor briefly about how much I would love to do a pumpkin carving project with my kids. Uh, they've just been doing really well and we're ahead of schedule and it just seemed like good timing it was right before Halloween. And she said, oh, that's a great, I could pick up some pumpkin, let's do, yeah, all right, let's do it. And then um, that was Friday and then the next Monday, she didn't mention it and so I sort of let it go and didn't think much of it. Well, today, which is November 7th, I think. Mm-hmm. Eighth? Eighth, one of the days. Ninth, I think. Ninth. You can tell I love dates. Ninth. Well past Halloween and even (laughs) Dia de los Muertos. Like, all of a sudden today, I come into my classroom and there are 11 pumpkins sitting there. And I work in a lunchroom where I have this big floating wall that separates two long tables that are covered in white paper from the rest of the lunchroom. And uh, I took a picture of it, of the 11 pumpkins sitting there on a table in a lunchroom. But that picture, that photograph, does not tell. It's, it's, I will look back at it later and know and laugh about it because it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Because there was no, there was no note. <laughs> there was no email. I had received no text or phone calls. No one had come down and told me, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to get those pumpkins for you. They just appeared in my classroom. Uh, and suddenly I had to do something with them, especially because upon further inspection, I think these pumpkins might have been picked up right after that conversation and have been sitting in a car because <laughs> there's some mold on them and oh, they're lopsided. That's, that's and terrible. And so we got right down to it, and we carved those pumpkins today. And uh, it'll be another, it'll be Friday when I see those particular children again. We do more of it, but one of them busted through a hole in one side of the pumpkin because it was molding, and therefore went straight through. So I switched pumpkins with her, as you do, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but that photograph doesn't tell that story and doesn't convey this bemused emotion that I felt this morning as I looked at those pumpkins and thought, oh, I bet those are for me. <laughs> Why else would they be here? Mm -hmm. And oh dear, how will I invent pumpkin carving tools because I wasn't prepared for this? Uh, that photograph, no one... I, I think it would be very hard for someone to create that story out of it mm -hmm. had they not been given information. Now, I'm sure they could create many other stories that would be brilliant and wonderful and may or may not have some of the same emotions that I had. Right, yeah. But if I wrote about it and told some specifics, oh, yeah. and then it, and it could even accompany it with the photograph or not, but it doesn't really matter what the pumpkins look like. Yeah. It's just this mysterious... Well, yeah, I think that like with, with photography, there's... Depending upon the type of photograph, I think that there's only so much information that can be... It's a much... Um, I think the audience has to do a lot more work in filling in and figuring out what it means. Whereas with... Um, like you said, with writing. Like if you were to write about it, you could get... Um, you can convey much more of the emotion or whatever it is that you're trying to express... Easy, more easily potentially because you can actually like describe the stuff and you can give you could fill in some of the backstory to get people to like hit like even if they do have to fill in some of it themselves they're going to be filling it in you give them more of the framework or more of like um like if you had um i don't know like if you threw a sheet over a box and had it be like the silhouette of a person versus if you had just like one of them like a skeleton things in the biology room and threw a sheet over that you can make out more of like oh there's a skeleton there's supposed to be a skeleton underneath here it's supposed to be the shape of a body not just just like right box like seeing a photograph of a glacier mm -hmm. is one thing but seeing a photograph of a glacier and then seeing that it's labeled south carolina mm -hmm. tells a much much different oh, story yeah. mm -hmm. not that i have seen that but it would be fun and right. it would make you think wait what yeah why? Mm -hmm. You want to know the story mm -hmm. behind that. And I think, and then photographers many times will label and, and, and figure out a way to do that. But, uh, yeah, you could like, you could do some work with the title of that if you, oh, I easily could, but it's so much more fun in that particular instance to tell the story. I would yeah. rather do that. And I think that when you're talking about poetry and how does it intersect with your other work, and which is a question, I didn't make that up on my own. Uh, that's that's part of it. It's there's a time and a place for me mm -hmm. when photography makes sense, right. or when sculpture makes sense, or a quick doodle makes sense, or when poetry makes sense, or when a short story makes sense. So you you have written poetry. I have written probably dreadful poetry. Have I? I and I workshopped it in classes. I had, took a poetry class. I've made several chapbooks, but. I have never like, read my poetry album. The, the fact that you outside of class, that like you grew up with poetry, I'm kind of astounded by the fact that you're not like writing it. More. Well, I think I am. Ira Glass does a great job of describing this, and I really wish I had brought that. Of course, I didn't bring the one prop I really needed, but it's amazing. Uh, it's a phenomenal quote for any creative people, and in fact, I think that's how it starts out. Um, the quote um, where he says something that creative people need to remember is that because you're creative, you are probably attracted to a lot of other creative things. You're probably right. attracted to a lot of the masterworks of a lot of creative things 
within the same vein that you are trying to work through. And by comparing your work to theirs <laughs> is unfair to you because mm -hmm. you're seeing a finished work that took years to develop. Right. And you yourself are in the development stage. And many creative people give up in that moment, decide to stop. And yeah. the idea is, nope, you got to say, this is where I am right now. And it might stink. And it's definitely not what I think is right. Because I have this very established set of aesthetics that I think good work should look or sound or be like. And because you are, are doing that, you are not allowing yourself to grow. Because there might be a moment there or very likely you're going to meet that person whose work you think is perfect and mm -hmm. they're going to say how much they admire or would like to be doing something bigger, grander, di completely different. Oh yeah, I I think that it one of the most I think one of the most dangerous things that artists can do at any any stage of their practice or their their artistic life is to compare where they are in at any point in time to where somebody another artist is at any point in time um like if you if you're looking to somebody else's life for inspiration like you with emily dickinson it's like that that sort of that can draw you into um like your own discoveries and your own um like your own way of doing things and deeper in like draw you deeper into yourself that's fantastic i think like everybody should have people that they can look to or like um art pieces or like other artists or any anything like that that you can look at to um as sources of inspiration and sources of encouragement or sources of um like like what basho wrote to some of his which is something that i i always come back to i think it's great that in a letter to some of his disciples basho wrote something along the lines of um like don't follow in the master's steps. Seek what they sought. Because if you seek what whatever it is that the masters are also seeking, you will probably follow along paths that are similarly cut to theirs, but will be your own because you're blazing these trails and you're using them mostly as like guideposts. They're like, oh, okay, they're they kind of round up in the same area. So I'm I feel like I'm kind of on the right track with this. Um, it's really really destructive. To compare yourself to somebody else and be like, oh, at this point in their life, they had written all of this stuff and they've done all this, and I haven't. It's like, well, yeah, because you're you, and and what I've discovered this, and I also picked up uh, Felicity by Mary Oliver, which is a new collection. Um, and the very very first poem in this collection um, is entitled "Don't Worry," and it goes like this. Things take the time they take. Don't worry. How many roads did St. Augustine follow before he became St. Augustine? <laughs> <laughs> With great flourish. <laughs> um, but that's like that whole idea that, you know, like you said, you're looking at these, you're, you would look at these finished works or see artists after so many years of development, you're like, I want to be that right now. Like, no. It will take you however long it takes you to get to a place that's comparable to them. Yeah. Because there's no guarantee. I mean, there's no absolutely no guarantee that you will wind up exactly where they are. But you shouldn't even strive for that anyway, because 
that's where they wound up. And, you know, you're like, Sarah Bear is not Emily Dickinson or Bukowski <laughs> or God. Stephen Dunn or. No, I mean, none of those people. And, and I think, so in saying that, a long-winded response to answer your question, I have very established aesthetics in what I like in poetry. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't say I'm frustrated with, but I'm almost struck by the knowledge that this would take so much time to develop. And right now, my time is being spent elsewhere. Though, I I do love it. And I have to say, being given uh, deadlines, like I was asked by... Um, friends of ours who should also have on this podcast to be a wild card for a reading they were doing. Wild card meaning uh, someone who doesn't um, maybe publish their work regularly or maybe doesn't consider themselves writers at all. Mm -hmm. That would be me. And I had to write something for that. And I toiled over it and edited it to death, read it to millions of people before I got up there still felt incredibly um, nervous and not prepared once I got there. But I made myself do it because it was terrifying. And I'm so happy for that experience. And I honestly, if someone said, would you like to read some poetry for this thing? Oh, I would write some poetry for your thing. Mm -hmm. And not because I want glory or I want necessarily to be up there. In fact, I really don't want to be up there. But that's exactly why I feel like I should be doing it. Because being forced to do something and being held accountable for it, you do realize how, what you are capable of. Because, yeah, there's still plenty in that work that I would change now. But honestly, it was received well, yeah. and I I didn't feel like I was going to dissolve into a puddle afterwards. I survived the experience, which led me to believe that I could potentially survive that experience again if if need be. And part of me wants that challenge. There are some challenges I don't want to <laughs> challenge, like karaoke. Not gonna happen. But someone wants me to write something, hell, I probably should do that because I think some part of me wants to do it anyway. Yeah. It's just toiling through that on my own is almost harder because I'm not going to set a deadline for myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's – so I started – I don't know if you know this, but I started um, a writing group where I was inducted into a writing group with Anthony and Tyler and Andy and Carolyn. Um. And it'll be nice again to, to have, like, I mean, we're meeting every three weeks and we have kind of a, or in a rotation of who is writing or, like, who's submitting what, when. Um, so if you don't want to go, you have a huge span of time in which to write something. But it'll be nice to be back on kind of a semi-deadline of, um, you know, that there is, if there's anything that I'm working on, to have it done by then. Although I have so many poems and backlog that I need to get like looked at and revised that um i don't know okay let me we're getting we're encroaching an hour and 30 um yeah we've been talking for an hour and 30 which is not as long as some of the other conversations that we've had on like the times that we've gone to billy goat uh, we've been out there for what like four or five hours and have talked almost the entire time about stuff similar to this but anyway um i I guess i want to ask you kind of two main questions um one 
um, are there any experiences or like other poets or artists or any anybody um, that have significantly changed the way that you approach or understand poetry? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you feel like expounding upon that at all, or? Um. Sure. Yes, I I feel like I've encountered that many times. Um, and whittling it down to poetry, I've got this book right in front of me, um, Inferno by Eileen Miles, which is, um, the byline is a poet's novel, in parentheses. Ooh. And she's talked about it as a, as a novel for poets. So a lot of it is very prose-like. Eileen Miles is uh, is amazing, and if you don't know who she is, you get on that. Uh, she's amazing, and she's completely expanded my worldview, but also how I think about poetry, because really mostly it is prose, but in this beautiful slap-in-your-face kind of David Foster Wallace way of, of just no, not a lot of periods. We're going to have this run-on sentence, and it's going to be glorious. Uh, very well-selected vote huge vocabulary uh, just but also just very grounded and very much her own voice in a way that I think is hard scary and so needed I think one of the ways that I uh, get frustrated with myself when I'm trying to write is that I lose my voice trying so hard to sound like uh, another voice mm-hmm. and she adds in likes and um, just little <laughs> bits where I, it just works in this way that's fantastic. Um, Have you ever read the She's amazing. She also reads really well. Oh. <laughs> reads her own work very Which, well. For Sarah Which Sarah is an important thing. <laughs> yes. Um, have you ever read the autobiography of Red by Ann Carson? Uh, I actually have not. You should. It lives on my dad's bookcase, so I should probably pick it up. You could pick it up from my bookcase if you want to borrow it. Okay, I'll do it. Um, the other main question that I wanted to ask, um, what is your, like, what poets are in your pantheon? Like, your top? My like, tops? Yeah. Like, the ones that have... Well, they're all here. <laughs> um, the ones that have, like, affected you or, um, like, did the most significant work on you and just either in your understanding of poetry or just in your, like, your life in general. I'm probably going to forget a lot, but... I've talked about a lot of them already. Eileen Miles, Stephen Dunn, Jack Spicer I didn't put in there, but I would. Um, Russell Edson. Russell Edson is another um, writer who, I am I mean, they have his work on the Poetry Foundation, right? But mm-hmm. I, the first word that comes to mind when I think to describe him is not um, poet, though definitely it's, he's earned it, just doesn't occur to me to think of him that way. And you're talking Only. about Jack? Russell Edson. Russell. Okay. Um, what else is in here? <laughs> There's a lot of the same person. Uh, yeah, I would say that was also Patti Smith. Uh, I definitely. In fact, I remember in high school you buzzing around her for one of Halloween my Halloween karaoke. adventures <laughs> in which I did not sing because I don't do that um, yeah. ever. And, <laughs> yeah, I remember picking up one of her books and when I was in high school, early high school, early ninth grade, and I had never even listened to any of her uh, songs at that point or didn't realize that I had. And 
it was beautiful and I couldn't put it down. I read the entire thing sitting in the bookstore on like a Friday night when I was supposed to be out with my friends or whatever. And um, because I read it and because I was young and wasn't going to pay for it, uh, I kind of held it with me but didn't, I didn't think to buy it. Mm-hmm. And then stumbled across it again after college and was just blown away. And in fact, I'm reading right now her a latest novel, which is kind of, it, it is autobiographical, but in a strange Hallie Smith sort of way. And it's beautiful. I don't know. It just so rich in her understanding and yet so unapologetically quiet and alone. Mm. And I've said unapologetically a lot today. But just this idea that, um, yeah, I was going to do this thing, but instead I decided to get a hotel and just watch TV all night. And in my thought of who Patty Smith is, she's almost too grand to have ever done something like that. (laughs) You know, something so human like the rest of us. And I think that's part of the reason why Bukowski and Stephen Dunn also appeal to me because Stephen Dunn can write a poem about some uh, bags of leaves on the street, something that you see every day. It's something that's decidedly a very suburban sort of experience of life and uh, make me completely reconsider it and appreciate it and hate it more somewhat, (laughs) but also love it because it is part of my own experience of life. And I think that's part of it with Eileen Miles, too, because she's um, a queer writer, and that's how I identify. So. They're almost, like, anti-romantic. It's like they, yeah. they take they take all that, that bluster and that... I mean, especially Bukowski takes all, of, like, the romanticism and all the bluster and all the puffed-upness out of being an, a poet. But, like, he's... He does not live a glamorous life, and he does not try to make it appear to be a glamorous life. It's just kind of... You know, it's life, and I feel like like your description of the Patty Smith novel seems like it kind of fits the same thing. It's like it's just like it represents or it's work that reveals more, much more of the humanity and much more of the kind of everydayness of these people. And the fact that it's like they're just they're people. Yeah, I mean, Patty Smith made extraordinary choices and put herself in extraordinary um, situations and locations that I myself maybe have not organized my life enough to be able to do, uh, which definitely changes it. But, but to have that be such an extraordinary moment right along with this extraordinary moment that I decided to write about and keep in my book about staying and watching crime TV shows, both of those are extraordinary moments. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't... I, I think there's some freedom for that in me and as someone who feels like wow maybe I didn't go out and conquer the world like I thought when yeah. I was a small child that but my experience is still valid and, oh, yeah. and um, worthwhile and I am still getting quite a lot from where I am even though I have been here for so long I'm I, I don't think I could ever stop noticing new things about it and I think reading poetry like that or novels like that really has changed me in that way and, and helping me validate those experiences for myself. Denise Levertoff is another. I just wrote it down. Another one. And this one is just really fun. I really wanted to read it out loud because that's what I like to do. I like to read poems out loud. So I, do you, okay, so 
my final friend. my final thing is do you let's, let's do you want to read a poem out loud no yes. i was gonna ask if you had any <laughs> if there are any things that you wanted to ask me and then we could finish with you yes. reading that poem out loud. i have a burning question to ask you okay okay my question for you is how much about a poet do you seek out after either liking or disliking their work and how important is it to know for you where that poem's background is, who they are as people, as much as you could know? Um, that That's what I want to know. Uh, would that change it for you? If, if you realize that an author you've been reading for a long time and you thought you had an understanding of was actually under a pseudonym and was living a very different kind of life than what you had assumed. Um. Well, actually, um, something like that happened relatively recently. Um, so I'm Mary Oliver was the first poet that I ever read for my own edification. Um, I was in a Barnes and Noble and I saw the cover of Redbird and I flipped through it and I was like, I I have to get this. There's something about it. And since then, she's been um, very close, if not consistently, at the top of my pantheon of, of writers. That they're like the way that she writes and the way that she notices things and how like effortless and sincere and just like I don't know I see so much of Mary Oliver in the way that she writes um, but I recently found out that she um, is a lesbian or at least um, had like her long-standing partner for 40 years is a woman and I did not know this like at all and it never at least from the stuff that I've read of her work, it, in my my reading of it, never really seemed to come up in her writing, even though it, like so much of her writing is so personal. Like that aspect didn't come up. And after finding that out, my initial response was like, oh, wow, I like her more now, for, like for whatever reason. And then I was like, well, I don't, no, I don't think I do. It's like it's just it's given me a um, it kind of completes like it gives me a bigger picture of her. Um, but I don't think that it's really fundamentally changed anything that I've like I still read her poems the same um, I really think that it I think that it depends um, a lot of the poetry that I read is pretty autobiographical so I feel like I get kind of a what I need to know or at least what I feel like the poet wants the reader to know out of reading their stuff so it's I very rarely um, like seek out more than that um i don't think that i think that for certain poems for certain poets it would probably um it might matter like or like writers like kafka you really have to understand kafka's life and understand him as a person to really like understand why he wrote the way that he wrote and like the the themes and the things that he used because that's it's very his writing is very much influenced by his life I think there's other writers who, like uh, Christian Bach, who wrote Anoya, which is a, like lipogram, like a. The whole book is written in sections that are comprised of words that are only that only use uh, certain vowels. Um, I don't think that you really need to know a whole lot about his life, or if you found out more about his life, I don't think that that would fundamentally or that would change really anything about your understanding of the book because there's that's not really kind of what it's about, you know. Um, is there anything you could learn about a writer that would invalidate their work to you? Um, no, 
I mean, but that I've, that's something that I struggle with, like Bukowski, or like you know Picasso, or any, um, or even like Elliot, like anybody um, who is an artist that produces, arguably at least for you personally, like great works of art that um, the artists in and of themselves as people are really kind of like at best like uh, and at worst just like deplorable people. Um, I don't know. I think that I don't think that the who the person is invalidates their art. I think that it might shed a different light on it, and you might have to like more consideration might have to be taken in like reading and understanding and appreciating the art. But I still think that like you can objectively look at something and say like that's a really solid piece of work. Um, or say that's a really well written poem even if the person who wrote it is, like, terrible. I think that there's a level of, um, a level of distance and level of divorce that is kind of necessary for, um, like, art. Or it sometimes has to be necessary for, like, art. Or, like, you know, like, um, like, Pollock was a pretty terrible person, right? Um, but he did, like, really interesting work, and he affected the art world in a really, like, important way. Um, I don't know. I don't... I don't think that there's anything that I could find out about an artist that would make... that, in my view, or my eyes, would invalidate the art that they did. But I think that there are certain things that would greatly challenge or change my perception of the art. Like, not make it invalid, but just, like, I, it will be seen with a very different lens. It's like, oh, now knowing that this person is, like, a sociopath or something. It's like, that's, well, probably change the way that I see, you know, the way that I, like, personally have to approach their work. Um, I don't know. I, most of the, the writers that I've been tending towards now seem like they're pretty okay people, so it's easy for me to, to, to really like I guess that's probably the other the difference or the distinction is like liking the art or liking the artist, because um, like you, I think you can like the art of somebody even if they're a terrible person. It's just you you have to not like them as a as a person. Um, but most of the artists, or like most of the poets now that I've been getting into, seem to be pretty neat people. So I'm like, okay, I can I can like them, and that like it fuses it a little bit more that it's like the both the art and the artists I can can occupy the same space instead of it having to be like these two halves that you kind of have to approach and deal with differently I felt really rambling I don't know if it made a whole lot of sense no but. it did it did I'm thinking of it pointedly because it's part of a larger conversation that I've been having a lot um, but I think you answered it well and and similarly to how I, I feel and I think that, like, for each, I mean, that's and that's just a personal thing for me. I think with everybody, there's, um, like, you, everybody has to kind of figure that out for themselves and figure out, um, like, how much, how much of the artist that they will allow in to their interpretation of the work and their perception of it. Because even, like, the art can mean something for you, and it might mean something for the artist, and if the artist is a terrible person... It's like whatever it means for them is still a valid thing because they're the ones who created it, but it can be a consideration or interpretation that you just choose not to. I mean, you might acknowledge, but you choose not to hold to or that you put more emphasis on the thing that it means for you 
personally. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the whole um, like deep read or close reading where you essentially like abolish the author and their whatever they intended for the work and just go at it with what's in the text um, in the sense that one it frees up like the, the myriad interpretations of a work and um, so it's you're not focusing on trying to find the one true quote-unquote interpretation or reading of it um, but also you know in that sense unless it's super autobiographical or it's very much written out of the the author's personal experiences you don't really need it and even in the even knowing that it's like oh this person went to war or like um wilford owen um like all of you know a lot of his poetry is written during world war one um like knowing that he that it was written like that you know might put it into some historical context or might open up some other avenues of conversation but just reading the poems I mean, one, you could probably glean a whole lot of that, at least that it was written in war, and which puts it in its own kind of category of, of poetry or interpretation. Um, but, yeah, just, I mean, deal with, I think, start with dealing with pieces on their own terms, and then start drawing in the rest of the stuff just for, like, bigger pictures um, and different facets. Because I think that's really, especially when you're dealing with art, it's, like, so subjective that the best you can do is just see another facet of it and try to put that and add it to the, the larger picture of um, like the totality of the light that's coming off of this thing and you're seeing just one or two beams and recognizing that there's a lot of other beams that are coming off that you just you don't have the vantage point right now to see. Is there anything else? You want to finish reading off that poem? And, and then we'll stop? Yeah, because okay. I think I'm again guys these things keep getting longer and longer um, I'm gonna go. I'm not. No, just do it. I'm not I don't, gonna go really quickly because that would be unfair to listen. Yeah, people. Seem read, to, people seem to still be listening to them, so I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take advantage of that. Good. Okay, I'll read two, but the other one's really short. This one makes me laugh because it has my name in it. Uh, this is by Jennifer Chang. It's entitled "Conversation with Slugs and Sarah." Up late watching slug porn, you confess you had a boyfriend who could spin you like that. Slug grace and slug ballet. We don't touch the topic of slime. And those eyes dangling from tentacle tips must be a kind of love or lust, sighting farther and nearer all at once. But are those eyes? Slug sublimity suggests love's a drag. Touch that lingers and leaves a wet trail of memory. And what did we do before YouTube? Boob tube. Boobs we have none. Slugs. Of course you don't care. Can't tell girl from boy. Being, you know hermaphrodites, and only want flesh to fly. Forget their infamous languor. Here's litheness and loving, buoyant miracles of want, one slug spiraling on the axis of another like a globe slapped by an insolent hand. Neither old nor young, we're familiar with sluggishness, too tired to explain why nothing makes us spin like that. A swirl, a pirouette, gyre. It's either fucking or marriage, I say, saying more than I mean. Why can't lust be love and love be lust, you're always asking. Even now, as the slugs begin their sluggish withdrawal, each complete in love and lust, each mother and father to what they've made together, each alone, content, and free. One Damn. more. 
the title's cut off. I'll have to send it to Michael later. But it's something, 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 consumption. By Megan Boyle. I want to go to the gym and pretend the weight machines are drums and play the longest drum solo on them. Everyone will stop working out, will look at me. Gradually, a crowd will gather. People will nod their heads and whisper to each other, what is she doing? I don't know. You should read audiobooks. The end. <laughs> I love reading. I got to read scary stories today because my school had a scary story competition and I got to read some of the winners and it was the best part of my entire day, aside from just now. I, that and you fed me some bread beforehand, which otherwise this podcast would have been my stomach gurgling and that's it. Um, which I still think would be a good podcast in case you need a follow-up. It could be a, <laughs> a, a AS, ASMR. Yeah, would it? I don't know if that would trigger the whisper or not. Um, yeah, so that's, I think that's a wrap on uh, episode five. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Michael. I'm sure that we will talk more about these things in the future, which may or may not be recorded for posterity and or podcast. Um, this will hopefully go up on a couple of days. Um, I'll be talking to Anne-Marie later on in the month. Um, until then... Be good. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm still. So I, I don't know. Poetry. I don't know what what a good sign off is. I don't know. Just enjoy enjoy art. Enjoy doing stuff with people or yourself. Whatever. Later, guys. <laughs>